Welcome back to the last episode of 2018 for Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. Well, 2019 is just around the corner, so I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to sit down and have a conversation about what 2018 looked like in the world of digital marketing at large and advertising within that. There have been so many huge news stories and uh, trends changing. And so I wanted to take this last episode, step back a little bit. There's no guest today. It's just me talking about what's been going on this year so that perhaps if you're a new listener to the show, you can get caught up and then listen in as we begin 2019 off very strongly with a number of great interviews. Can't wait to bring those to you, but I'm going to keep the guests under wraps for now. And until then, just give you a sense of where we are. Because as I said just a second ago, there are so many important things that have happened so far this year, which we need to address because the world is changing and as such, marketing is changing. And we'll get a little bit into regulations and other things going on, but advertising, the world of advertising has certainly changed. And it's put a lot of pressure on brands as to what to do and how to move forward. So I wanted to take a few minutes today to address everything that's been going on in a number of buckets. All right, and I'm going to read these buckets off for you. I have a couple of notes here, but mostly this is going to be off the cuff. So buckle in because we're going to be a few minutes talking about a whole wide range of things, covering the topics of how to get direct, ad trends and how they're changing, ads becoming risky, increasing regulation, and influencers evolving. Lots of different moving parts there. I will give you a rough chronology of when all of these things happened during 2018 because they're going to follow five parallel timelines. So let's start off with one of the level setters of the year in this bucket of how to get direct. January 12th of 2018. They call this change the Facebook nuclear bomb. Essentially, Facebook changed their news feed such that posts that family or friends of yours make will become more prominent in the news feed. And as such, brands uh, and businesses who are posting, mass media as well, uh, are going to be made or were going to be made less prominent in Facebook's algorithm, which did a couple of things. Uh, First of all, it made the experience of Facebook, for what it's worth, much more personal because you were seeing a lot less uh, of branded, sponsored posts. You were seeing a lot less of sort of that viral video content that you get from a lot of media organizations. And on the brand side, it left them wondering. As soon as that happened, as soon as that nuclear bomb went off, so to speak, ad inventory because of that suddenly went down created a lot of competition, the prices went up, and especially this year, you began to see the rise of how a lot of brands, especially direct-to-consumer brands, dealt with that. Just later that month in January, Adweek ran another piece discussing how to build a community rather than how to build an audience. Because the case was that brands who were feeling the biggest impact from these social networks, Facebook namely at the time, Pulling back the effectiveness of brand distribution uh, were the ones who were also not investing in other ways to build communities through their own efforts or through their own platforms. And importantly, it positioned social media giants as platforms for engagement uh, rather than platforms for customer acquisition. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of brands uh, were relying on Facebook for a hefty majority of all of their marketing activity instead of viewing Facebook and other social media networks as areas for distribution. A little later in the year in February, a Business Insider published a story with the CEO of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. His name's Randall Rothenberg. 
And specifically, they were talking about his take on how direct-to-consumer brands were disrupting and were ripe to disrupt uh, the growth of these traditional consumer giants. The takeaway there being that big brands must become direct. They have to be as nimble as the small brands because the nimble brands were nibbling away at their success. And while the largest brands out there saw marginal gains through 2018, the reality of the situation is that in most major categories, direct-to-consumer brands um, and the volume of direct-to-consumer brands that came about were nibbling at the niche and they were taking a lot of that growth which was expected away. And so brands immediately began asking the question, how can we start to emulate some of the strategies that these direct-to-consumer brands were taking? In June, the Harvard Business Review ran a story uh, that posited that if big brands wanted to compete properly with Amazon, this is speaking specifically there, it's a whole different take on how share was being taken away. Amazon owning that entire experience, not only the platform, but the marketplace, and in some ways, the way in which consumers bought, specifically through its Alexa-enabled uh, devices, to be able to say Alexa, and they, they spoke specifically about buying batteries, how Amazon Basics became huge in batteries and huge elsewhere, because they owned everything. They owned the production, they owned the marketplace, they owned the platform, and they owned the medium uh, through which consumers could buy easily. So HBR went on to say if big brands want to compete properly with Amazon, the first thing they need to do is to create an on-demand, always-on, direct connection with their customers in a conversational interface. That's a quote. Basically saying that they need to use their own owned platforms to enable this direct commerce and to find other ways to engage. And then on top of that, to find the right use case to motivate customers to engage with the brand not only because that would continue to grow sales and start to emulate that direct feel, but also it would allow for uh, data tracking, data collection, data retention. And so brands are not only now struggling to figure out how to advertise effectively, effectively, but also how to retain, collect, and use that data in a permissible way. Finally, towards the end of the year, right around the time that this show, Authentic Influence, kicked off, there was Another article from Fast Company in October, which described a few winning strategies for advertisers to use, uh, specifically on social media, but moving towards the stories feature uh, of apps like uh, Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram. This is the, some of that more instant content that you can pull down. And for brands, it's, it's a very important place to begin to sit because at first it was just users posting what was going on during their day. And of course, companies saw a great opportunity there. Um, but chiefly among these winning strategies uh, were balancing production value uh, with authenticity, which means you know, how do you find a way to directly inject users and consumers' voices in with the professional content that was already being made? And how do you find a happy medium there? Um, a lot of times that meant less scripting, more off-the-cuff moments. Um, and finally, how do you place the user uh, in center stage of these moments? Because these mediums, stories, um, social media posts by your everyday consumer, uh, that's exactly what that does. So for a brand to be able to bring a user into center stage has become especially important when it comes to becoming more authentic. And if you'll excuse the saying, how to build authentic influence. So becoming direct was a big trend for the year especially those consumer brands who were feeling the pressure and were getting nibbled at their heels by these direct-to-consumer brands. Now, along with that and along with these other large algorithm changes that you saw on social media, you also saw ad trends start to change. 
both in the use of user-generated content within large media, um, as well as goals for the future, uh, as well as how spending trends changed as a result of inventory changing and of behavioral changes. So first of all, in February, we saw probably one of the most prominent examples of the year of user-generated content being put into mass media, which was through Craft. Craft used user-generated content uh, in their Super Bowl spot and did it very quickly, very quickly aggregated through the use of two separate hashtags. They got user content. They were able to meld that together in with uh, their large Super Bowl commercial. It was part of their Family Greatly campaign, which had been going on for a number of months. But this was one of the centerpieces of that campaign. And again, it's one of the most prominent examples of the user becoming center stage within, within mass media. The very next month, in March, the Wall Street Journal wrote a story about how Fox was planning to approach its advertising strategy in the next couple of years, notably by saying that by 2020, so that's only two years away, that they would reduce the ad time to two minutes per hour, which is a lot less than you see today. And they started by testing this on, I believe, FX. And uh, they experimented with reducing that time, and they found favorable results within their viewability and their ratings. So uh, they found that this was a goal to strive for, and also the rise of streaming and other ad-free platforms have pressured, let's call it big TV, to become a lot less interruptive in its messaging, or if you were going to be interruptive, to do it uh, in, a, in a very small way. And so that, of course, means less interruptive ads. That also means less inventory and more competition for that advertising space. And uh, that was echoed not only in uh, programmatic advertising, but also in social media. In June, we, we saw DigiDay reporting that direct consumer brands are, were beginning to either become saturated uh, with or moving away entirely from Facebook advertising. And as such, they were looking to alternative methods to attract, engage, and retain customers. Because with Facebook's algorithm changes, the ad inventory, as I said a little bit ago, was immediately lessened because the prioritization was no longer there. The prioritization was with family and friends. And that means that the prices for that ad inventory that was remaining went up. It went really up. In fact, it more than doubled in some cases. And in areas where businesses were doing so much of their advertising on Facebook, to see your prices double overnight was you know, a lot. And it immediately got even the direct-to-consumer brands thinking, how can I do something different? How can I be unique? How can I stand out? Now, along with ad consumption and purchase trends changing, you also saw behavioral changes and I almost want to say feeling changes with regards to how advertisers felt uh, about the state of advertising today. And so right in that same month, June, uh, the media company Oath put out a survey uh, which showed that most respondents, the majority of folks, were more concerned about brand safety this year over last year uh, by a pretty staunch percentage. And, you know, being safe with your messaging is one of the most important things. If you're a longer term listener to this show, you'll know that when we spoke with Peter Horst, the past CMO of Hershey and Capital One, he noted that brand value as a percentage of book value can be very, very high, in some cases as high as 50%. And that means that brand safety is inherently going to become more and more important over time. And this survey was, was an example of that. On top of that, nearly half of respondents claimed that user-generated content sites, and in this case they mean folks like YouTube and Facebook, 
uh, were not addressing the concerns in brand safety that they had. And thirdly, although this might not be the most surprising statistic, uh, 99%, so almost everybody, 99% said they were concerned about their ads appearing in brand safe environments. And we'll talk a little bit later about some of the scandals that came uh, from that and that caused that. But overall, the message here was clear that there, there is more worry overall about brand safety when it comes to putting messaging and branded IP out there um, in general, leading advertisers to consider uh, more holistic solutions, more direct solutions, perhaps platforms to take more control over that, to bring it in-house. You also saw, in my opinion, one of the larger stories of the year, Wall Street Journal in June, talking about the future of digital marketing in a data privacy world, which noted in part that brands in response to GDPR, which we'll talk about in another bucket, um, and growing distrust generally in society, that brands have started to turn inward. So you saw a lot more experiences going on in apps. You saw a lot more loyalty programs. Um, and while the article notes that if that trend continues at the rapid growth at which is occurring now down the road, you might get to a position where all the different brands are knocking on your door, essentially asking you to be their best friend. For now, it is a very quickly growing and appealing way to engage in a more authentic way. Again, it's a way to stand out. Ads becoming risky. Now, this one is um, a little scarier for brands because it uh, directly impacts where their messaging and branding sits. And unfortunately, it has to do with some of the more unsavory content out there being placed next to that advertisement that has created some of the biggest risk of all. This really started in late 2017, uh, the tragic shooting in Las Vegas, which claimed uh, 58 lives. In some cases, uh, we were being displayed alongside ads for major brands like Coca-Cola and others. And that created a lot of outrage and immediately backlash across uh, the internet and off the internet led businesses like YouTube to more stringently look at uh, or when advertisements were being placed and where they were being placed. That wasn't necessarily the end of it, though. I mean, through 2018, you saw this not only within influencers who were ending up in scandals, but uh, with companies taking a stand on this. In February, you had the CMO of Unilever, Keith Weed, claiming that digital platforms like Google and Facebook are increasingly sexist and racist and extremist and fake and, and as such are increasingly undeserving of, of its and I mean Unilever's advertising budget. He referred to 2018 as the year of tech lash, which I think was prescient as later in the year, you saw so many people uh, beginning to turn against these platforms because in some cases of the ads that were being put up, of the plethora of sponsored content coming through, uh, and of course, general distrust that's just growing as a part of society. Even as late as August, Adweek ran a story reporting that Twitter ads ran on profiles which were selling illegal drugs, and this, this impacted up to 20 brands. So we're certainly not past this. Um, ads are always going to be risky, and for what it's worth, these platforms are doing what they can to be able to take away advertising from such controversial topics uh, like tragedies and disasters and terrorist propaganda, but it remains to be seen a way for these folks to consistently get it right. And that's because there's so much content being produced on a consistent basis that it's very difficult to moderate all of it. And that's especially important when we talk about 
regulations increasing. And that's the next bucket of what's been going on in this year of digital marketing in 2018. Starting in May, uh, in terms of regulation, the first nuclear bomb drops, which is May 21, HBR releases a story on GDPR, a sweeping regulation happening in the European Union, which went into effect on May the 25th, which requires marketers to gain explicit permission to use the data of its consumers. And that upended many of the ways that traditional advertisers were targeting and serving messages to its audiences. And, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, it further underlines the need for these brands who who wish to have this data and use it um, to have a reason um, to build these one-to-one relationships to to stand out because that's the only way really according to this regulation that you're allowed to retain this data and to secure this data um, to use it for for future marketing purposes because that data after all is really really valuable it's one of the most valuable things that you can have but this regulation in a way of protecting consumers also says okay every brand out there you need a reason to keep this and you need a reason in the first place to have it Secondly, regulation which spread from the trend of GDPR passing in EU to the U.S., uh, California being the first of the states to do so, signing the Consumer Privacy Act into law. Uh, It was known across some media colloquially as GDPR Lite. This law also tightened up what companies could do in the U.S. with their users' data. And it also gave users the right to say, hey, I don't want you keeping my data. I want you to delete it. I don't want you to retain it. I don't want you to sell it. I don't want you to use it for anything. And what I thought was most interesting about that is it also allows a user to refuse a company's terms of service without losing access to the offering. Now, it's important because even if a business operates in a state which is not California, there is obviously going to be users of that service who are in California. And so effectively, this law sets the scene for broader laws to be passed in the U.S. I personally think it would be very difficult to have 50 different versions of GDPR going around, but I do think that this will be a basis for what those laws or what a wide-sweeping law in the U.S. would ultimately look like if they don't just blanket accept what GDPR brings to the table. And while it's not meant to happen, it's not meant to go live until 2020, and while it may be weakened uh, before it actually goes into effect, it's reflective of this same trend. Consumers want more control over the information that they hand over to corporations. Simple as that. And finally, the biggest piece of recent legislation to pass happened in September. European Union, once again, approved another critical piece of legislation for content in general going forward. Overall, known as the Copyright Directive, finally passed in September after uh, an amendment to two articles, Article 11 and specifically Article 13, which is the one you may be more familiar with, uh, within it were passed. This article specifically, it holds large content aggregators like YouTube and Facebook and others responsible for copyrighted content posted on those platforms. So that means that, that these companies are going to have to scan Every piece of content, presumably, which it hosts against a library of known copyrighted content to be able to filter out that which is deemed in violation. Otherwise, YouTube, Facebook, and others are responsible for the uh, unlawful redistribution of that copyrighted content. So this has many people up in arms, not only uh, from the perspective of implicit censorship involved in that process, but also of the possibility of mistake making on a rampant scale whereby users' content is stricken from these platforms incorrectly. We've seen this in the U.S. and elsewhere already a lot and strongly uh, within YouTube. 
where content creators have their content removed or they have monetization. If this is something they do for a job themselves, they have monetization removed from their content wrongly. And this can either happen because uh, of a, of a, sorry, we didn't mean to do this, or we did this because we were being overprotective, but after manual review, we see that this content is okay. Or it's actually also been done fraudulently by the use of, well, basically copyright trolls. This is like patent trolls where they come in and they say, no, this is copyrighted material. I want to lay a claim on this video There are also conversations going back and forth about what happens once that complaint is made, who mitigates that, who arbitrates that conversation. But in general, these are reflective of an imperfect and new system, whereby there is so much stuff out there. As I said, there is so much content being produced, it becomes nearly impossible. And there have been other articles about this it is basically impossible to manage the sheer volume of content coming in. So with these increasing regulations, not only on the uh, acquisition and use of consumer data, but also on content that is being hosted on these sites, which also host a lot of this data, things are just tightening up. And it leaves brands once again wondering, where do I go from here? Now, the answer to that for, I think, a few years now has been in the use of influencers individuals or groups that already have so much of a following that by putting a piece of branded content out there and by putting money behind it, uh, they can produce authentic like content from a source that these consumers or fans of an influencer already trust. But even that is evolving. I mean, user content is certainly coming more to the forefront and influencers and what makes an influencer, that definition is getting smaller and smaller. So again, in February, you saw Kraft putting UGC into its Super Bowl ad. In June, you saw Adidas ahead of the World Cup do this mega push uh, of marketing and advertising. They leveraged 56 influencers to do it. They used hashtags to aggregate user content, displaying how sports are played and sports culture around the world. So a big influencer use there. And there have been a number of things, especially late in 2018, uh, which have been either brought to light or changing about the influencer economy. Specifically in November, two stories run. Wired runs a story on how influencer-sponsored content is getting extremely expensive for some of the larger influencers, sometimes up into the high five figures per piece of content to endorse a product or brand. And what's worse, there were also allegations raised that brands were also paying these influencers in some cases to badmouth competitors. Now, there wasn't much, uh, let's say, proof being put behind that, but there were certainly uh, anonymous uh, reports being made of that being the case. And so while that is an out-and-out influencer fraud, which is another buzzword that's been going around this year, it's certainly a way in which influencers can be used for something, let's say, other than direct promotion. At the same time, in November, you saw New York Times run a piece that said, are you ready for the nano-influencer? So to put all these prefixes on things, an influencer, I I don't really know what the audience minimum was. I would assume somebody with millions of of subscribers or followers. Then you saw a micro-influencer, which was somebody who had still a pretty sizable audience in a slightly smaller niche. And now you see this new wave of essentially advertising inventory coming to light in the form of nano-influencers. These are folks with as few as a thousand followers in niche communities who are willing to take on brand deals. The way I think about this is that it's 
really getting smaller and smaller in the audience. And eventually, similar to how brands want to get more direct and build one-to-one relationships, and just as brands are looking to come more in-house with their efforts, I believe that the next iteration of this will go from influencers to micro-influencers to nano-influencers to just people. People can become influencers. They can use their own personal networks to uh, talk about a brand if they want to. And while there might not be a huge five-figure check behind it, it's still a way to get the most authentic content out there possible. So that's just a hypothetical for me. I do think that's what's going to happen. We saw micro-influencer and nano-influencer both pop up in 2018. I can only imagine what 2019 will bring to the table. And finally... In December of this year, speaking about influencers and specifically speaking about fraud, two other large stories. First, it was revealed that in 2017, there were many influencer-level accounts. These are typically accounts of 100,000 followers or more, which were in fact being run and operated by Russia's internet research agency to sway public opinion on issues. And then on a slightly less malicious scale... You also saw The Atlantic run a story in mid-December about how influencers were beginning to create content which effectively was misleading users and followers into thinking they had brand endorsement deals when in fact they didn't. And this was a way to build street cred from the perspective of those influencers, but from brands it was drawing mixed reactions. Some loved it. They loved the, the unpaid attention, essentially, so far as that content was compelling or generally good. But uh, brands did also uh, express that they were running into problems and perhaps more frequently when their products or branding were being used in content, uh, which they themselves in this article were calling mediocre and by less desirable, quote, mid-level influencers without the brand's approval or control. And so in some cases, they were seeing this content being produced not only as a neutral, but even a negative. And as I said before, Brand IP is a huge driver of book value of a company. So when we look at all of these parallel timelines of how things developed over 2018, the trend of how to get more direct, the overall trend of where ads were being placed and the feelings towards them changing, the ads themselves becoming a risky endeavor, Of course, the increasing and looming regulations upon data and content around the world. And finally, how the term influencer and the influencer economy is changing and evolving. I think, in essence, we saw 2018 where everything got tightened up. Data became stricter. Permission to use content became stricter. The placement of ads next to anything became stricter. And in that way, brands began to pull back their traditional methods. And not only pulling back, but pulling inward through loyalty programs, through in-app experiences, through direct conversations, through building direct relationships. It seems obvious that when you look at these five parallel paths, you see them converging into a central theme. And that is that the most important avenue for attracting, retaining, maintaining, growing customers and followers is by working directly with them. Not necessarily by placing a bunch of ads on Facebook, though that is certainly impactful. Not necessarily by exclusively working with mega influencers, though they will certainly provide influence. But at the end of the day, how do you get the most authentic? In truth, the answer seems to be coming to a head at 
building one-to-one. I go back to a quote that I know, again, from Keith Weed, the CMO of Unilever, who said that it was Unilever's goal to, I think, build a billion one-to-one relationships. That's just how the world, I think, is going to develop when it comes to digital marketing and advertising. And so to give a brief outlook for 2019, I think you're going to see a lot of user-generated content. I think that you are going to see a ton of nano-influencers and people finding way more business opportunities through these micro-brand deals. I think you're going to see where ads sit, diversify a lot. And to the benefit of consumers, I think you're going to see a ton of content-rich experiences which get them directly involved into a brand's story to grow these relationships. And I think at the end of the day, that will create a lot more compelling content. It'll bring storytelling to the foreground even more than it is now. And again, to use the name of our show, I think it will build a lot of authentic influence. But in a sea of turmoil with regards to what has happened in 2018, regulations, content restrictions, and else, I think it provides hope for what we can see from a brand. Will we grow more distrustful in 2019? I'd like to think not. I'd like to think that folks are going to get more optimistic about things and hopefully things will be seen in a more positive light. Of course, I'm sure everybody thinks that in the spirit of new year, new me, perhaps a new year, new us. But in the way that content is evolving, it seems that not only is it going to be a byproduct of optimism and positivity, it's also going to be a byproduct of what draws the bottom line. We've seen so many direct-to-consumer brands do this well, and I think you're going to see big brands do it well as well. So it's a lot to take in, but I hope you appreciated uh, this year in review. We are certainly so excited to see where these trends go in 2019. And uh, as, as a little plug for this show, it's been such an honor to uh, produce and work through this for the last couple of months as we've gotten uh, this topic of authentic influence up and running. We've had some amazing folks come on the show and uh, talk about their takes when it comes to building influence for different reasons, for, for different factors of importance. And I can't wait to share with you all the amazing stories that we have in 2019. Uh, I think it's going to be a great year for, for marketing and branding. I think we're going to see some really incredible things. And I hope that you, the consumer, get the opportunity to become more involved directly in these efforts because not only can it be authentic, but it can be fun. With that, let's move into uh, 2019. I hope you had a fantastic year. I hope you've had a nice time tuning in and listening to these shows. If you want to hear more from us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at Vivoom Podcast, also at Vivoom to see what we're doing as a business in the way of building authentic influences for brands all around the world. And otherwise, stay subscribed to this show, leave a rating, say what you think. You love us, you hate us, let us know either way. And we'll be sure to incorporate that feedback going forward. Once again, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and for the last episode of 2018 for Authentic Influence, I can say it'll be next year, but you'll hear from us again next time.